Hey, it's Dr. Trek, Larry Nimichek, coming to you from Trekland here, host of the Trek Files, leader of Portal 47 backstage, Trekland Treks, everything good about Trekland, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. The moment that a person starts to delve deeper into something that they like often leads them down the road of fandom. It's when this show or this book or whatever it could be evolves to have a deeper connection and a larger meaning to the consumer of whatever this media is, and in turn, introduces them to a whole new world and community at large of like-minded individuals. For Star Trek fans, we go by many different names, including Trekkies, Trekkers, Niners, or whatever. But in every community, the good comes with the bad. And while there are plenty of supportive fans out there, the opposite is true too with toxic fans or even gatekeepers that have no problem letting everyone know how much they dislike something. This week on Trek Untold, we're discussing fandom and how the fandom works around Star Trek, particularly the history of it and what it means today to be a part of the Star Trek community at large. And what better person to chat with about this than Dr. Trek himself, Mr. Larry Nemechek. Larry has run his Trekland operation for over 25 years now, which includes his podcast, The Trek Files, and Trekland Tuesdays Live on Facebook and YouTube, along with another live show that he does with Dr. Ali Matu, Life Support Live. Larry is an archivist of Star Trek history, an author of several Star Trek books, and even wrote an episode of Voyager from the last season of it called The Prophecy. He's also appeared in an episode of Enterprise, and if you've ever seen the Star Trek Continue series on YouTube, you also know him as the original Dr. McCoy. And of course, being in this community as long as he's been in, he's been to plenty of conventions, not just as a guest, but he also runs his own cons and has traveled across the country doing panels at shows across the nation. Basically, Larry has done it all and gone from a Star Trek fan to a Star Trek professional over the course of a lifetime of hard work and passion for this franchise. It's safe to say Larry has been a lover of Star Trek longer than I've been alive. And he has seen the fandom change and evolve with every series that has come out since he first discovered the show as a kid. So in this episode, we talked to Larry not just about his journey in Star Trek and the road he had to get to where he is today, but we also examined the state of the Star Trek fandom. Take a look at where we're at and think about where we're headed. So stick around and enjoy this great discussion with Dr. Trek all about, well, all of us. But before we begin this week's episode, if you'd like to support this show, please don't forget to follow Trek Untold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get the latest updates and all sorts of other fun Star Trek-related content. You can also check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can check out the shows before they come out, know about my guests in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, among other benefits coming soon. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platform that allows for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. Doing any of those things help keep this show growing and allow me to continue bringing you awesome guests and great conversations every single week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, you may know him as Dr. Trek. We have the man himself. We've got Mr. Well, there he is. He's right there. Mr. Larry Nemechek. Larry, how's it going today? It's good. It's good. I just was looking around to see how many sides of the screen there could be, but I guess we've got two and that's good enough. There's a lot of parallel dimensions out there. So really there's like infinite screens. You want to get into that. Mm -hmm. It's the multi-screen. Yes. Infinite screens on infinite zoom sessions. <laughs> that's 2022. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Larry, I know you are a very, very busy man over in Trekland, which is your family of different sites and things you do in your YouTube channel. Uh, so for folks who might not know about you, which if they don't, shame on them for not. But uh, for folks who are new, maybe it's the first time hearing about Larry Nemechek, uh, tell us a little about what you do and what's going on in your channel. Oh, I love when you say channel, like it's all one compact thing or it's new or something. So There's a yeah, whole lot of so other things no, in that. I know that much. <laughs> I've, <laughs> well, basically everything I really, really, really enjoy doing is kind of my original twin interests of the background of Star Trek, both now we'd say the canon and uh, and all that is. And the, canon is not a, is not a C word. It's not a dirty word, it's, but it's not something mystical. So we can talk about that, too, because that sure interfaces with fandom, but also the making of the people that made it and why they did what they do and did and what their philosophies are and why they didn't do what they did and do. And, and the people at the top and the people on the bottom in the in the creative food chain and you know the the obvious is falling in love with the world of star trek and the universe and then after a few years go by and then you start to be savvy i was and then i like watching new fans go that route too and helping them that's kind of what life has become about in fact now i feel like i'm servicing the uh, you know the hosting and the interviewing and that is is not getting to indulge my own <laughs> i just want to sit down and encyclopedia eyes you know concordance eyes everything that's new that's coming out and and dive and then chase things down and chase that model maker or that costumer or that writer and, and ask them about it. And I don't, I'm, I've got to, I've got to, you know, keep the wheels rolling on all the, on the podcasts and the shows and portal 47, the business and all of that. And, uh, you know, there's times when I wish I could just sit down and come home from work, my day job and, and then just work on backgrounding for fun. So anyway, it's a juggle now, but you've got to you've got to have one with the other, and it's it's all what I love. Aside from having you know non Star Trek gasp interests, yeah, I mean, and, and basically Trekland folks who don't know entirely about it, it, there's all sorts of things going on there, like Larry just mentioned. And uh, you know, if you are a fan of my kind of podcast, my kind of show, which is what we do here, deep dives, Larry goes even deeper, uh, you know, because he's got literally an encyclopedia of knowledge in that brain of his about this franchise. So uh, you know, I think today you're going to hear a lot about that. Well, you did, people talk about brains and trivia and all that. I just, I say, you know, like I, I do know a lot, but there's a lot of new that's being cranked out now. You got to keep up with, but that's true. I, I don't claim to have everything. Don't, you know, don't, don't catch me flat footed on trivia or something. <laughs> but uh, if I don't have it right off, I know where to go look at or where to, who to ask, or I know where the bodies are buried, hopefully. So <laughs> between all of that, we'll get there. As much you think you know about a franchise, there's always more to learn. Well, that's true. That's true. And, and a lot of it, the more time goes by, everybody comes to Star Trek from where they are, from their, from their generation, the way they were raised, the culture around them, and also the Star Trek that's their first. And that's what's, that's what's great and lovely. And everybody has their you know, first Star Trek story. But everybody comes, it, it, as long as you came to it after 1964 or 66, then everybody came in with something having gone before. And everybody understands the past in a different way. Those who lived 
the 60s or those who lived week to week Berman era unfolding, right? Or those who came in during the droughts or the movies only or the complete drought between, I, I shouldn't say that because the Kelvin movies were there, but they were, they were, they were fake track. They were, they weren't even the prime universe. So, you know, and good on them. I'm not knocking for that reason, but I'm just saying we didn't get back and rebuild, you know, the core universe of Star Trek for 12 years. So um, anyway, but people all come to that at different places. And part of what I've done is we all come in and we intentionally or not, we come in with blinders on. And one of the things I try to do is gently, and I carry my own, believe me, but I try to gently remind everybody that, you know, if you weren't alive, then this is what happened here. This is what's colored people's perception. This is why this survived. And before you go off on a tirade here or a platform, this happened, you know, like this is not the first time this has happened. I mean, all those kinds of awarenesses, uh, if I can bring something like that, or if I can go and hunt them down and bring them in, um, that's what I try to do too, because there's, you know, this is supposed to be a fun, it's supposed to be a magnet for people, for positivity or for people get something out of it that makes them a fan or else they wouldn't be a fan. So why not either not, you know, get rid of the negativity and I'm not talking about critiques, but why not either get rid of the negativity or just here's all the layers you had no idea about because of where you are. And that's cool. And some things we're all still learning together. So, yeah, there, there's for sure a lot to unpack about the fandom and that kind of thing. But uh, earlier in your answer, you said something that is the perfect segue to uh, my first question. That I always ask my guests first here. Uh, uh -oh. And that would be, Larry, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? And I'm, I'm very interested in hearing this. I, okay. So when I was a kid, I had a, my older brother was 10 years older than me. And I vaguely remember, I remember Lost in Space being on TV and I remember watching and I was way too young to have, you know, this is cheesy, you know, but I remember playing Lost in Space at school at recess and my brother running the TV, controlling the TV when my parents didn't. And I remember vaguely there was another space show on about a guy with ears or something, but I didn't watch it and nobody in the house cared about it. And, uh, and I vaguely remember thinking if it was a guy with ears, it might be scary. And maybe when I was that little, I didn't want to watch. And then I remember vaguely a few years later, uh, some weekend flipping channels, back when we actually flipped channels, and coming across vaguely recognizing it was that show and the guy with the ears. And I can, I can, I can remember this, though. It was like Sunday afternoon, and these guys were walking down a hall and there was this floaty energy ball thing kind of tailing behind them, you know, or they were following it. And I was like, Oh, there's that show with the guy with the, anyway, it really came to a head with my, in ninth grade, my science teacher one day was long story short, was kidding around with some other students and they were all Trek people. And basically the upshot, I, I waddled into it, not knowing what they were doing. And after a couple of times, she realized I had no clue what they were doing. And I just will always remember, I'll never forget her looking at me and saying, oh, Larry, don't tell me you don't know Star Trek. And she's like, go home, go home and watch it after school right now, four o'clock. And I remember thinking, OK, I'll watch it. But isn't it on as a cartoon also? I'm going to watch the cartoon first. This made some logic to me at the time. I don't know why. I'm going to watch the cartoon first. And if I can and if I can stomach the cartoon or if the cartoon looks attractive to me, then I'll take a chance on the live show. I, that made some sense to me at the time. I don't know. But, you know, it was it was I was a rerun baby. And and yeah, it took about a week or two to totally get sucked in and not even realize you were sucked in. 
and you know daily reruns they recycled the night the the 79 80 shows that's about three months you know five days a week so what i didn't know was the weekend i saw you know day of the dove was what i saw and didn't know what i was watching obviously but it was so strange in in the school days they would show channel five abc affiliate in oklahoma city would show star trek at four and they would cut they it was the worst of the syndication. They would cut scenes to cram in more commercials. And not only that, they would cut the teaser and the voiceover. You'd get here. Okay, kiddies, here's the way it used to be before we had, you know, for streaming, before we had tapes and DVDs. They would, you'd have the station ID at the top of the hour. Ding, you're watching five KOCO TV in Oklahoma City. I mean, they'd cut the teaser and cut the voiceover and, you know, where no man has gone before. And that's where it would start. So you'd get that for just a second and then more commercials and then come back to act. <laughs> yeah. That's the worst. So when I went to college and we had another cable, a super cable station in the, you know, in the dorm lounge. And then when we got TVs in our rooms, it was like a whole nother. It's like, Oh, that's where all those, those clips I keep seeing in books are from. Like there was so much info in the teasers. A lot of times that you, you know, the, some of the factoids and some of the scenes. So it was like a few years later, I got a whole different, I had another little, uh, it's like little lost episodes, but anyway, but that was, that was, that's how it was in the day, but that was my, yeah, that was my intro. And then after the first time I went in to get a book, I didn't read fiction, but I was reading the background books and I got the making of Star Trek and the world of Star Trek and the tech manual. And I can remember the story behind all of these books. And a couple of them were Christmas gifts when I finally convinced my mom, this was serious, <laughs> But I remember getting, I think it was the making of Star Trek and something else. And I remember the guy at, at, um, at B. Dalton's looked at me at the mall and said, yeah, yeah, we try to keep, uh, we try to keep all the Star Trek stuff in stock for all you Trekkies. And I was like, oh, is, is that what I am now? Okay. Uh, okay. I guess so. <laughs> you know, but yeah, that's my, so there's some of my earlier moments. That's the secret origin of Larry Nemechek Trekkie, which is uh, pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and on this show, too, we like to kind of go back in the past and examine the things that brought people to where they are today. And, you know, in your case, you know, uh, we're talking about fans and fandom. And before you were Dr. Trek, you were a fan. And here you are telling us about how you first discovered the show, getting your fans on a book for the very first time. Uh, and you've then since gone on to write entire books. You've written the episode of Voyager we talked about. You showed up on an episode of Enterprise. I mean, you're living the dream. But uh, and, you know, today you've got this this empire of your own, if you will. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like well, step that's one, the hope. That's yeah, the hope. <laughs> I'm going to call it that because that's what I feel like you have. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like step one of your path probably began with your fanzine, right? Like, was that kind of your first time getting your, your toes wet in the world of fandom in a bigger way? Or is there something else I'm missing before then? The very first thing I did was get the making of Star Trek, Stephen Whitfield's book and love it and then go crazy because there's no index and there's no, you know, there's no way to tell. He's got pieces scattered all through the book and so the first thing i did was take chunks of his book and type it up in like an eight or ten page guide where if you wanted to just look at everything alphabetically phasers shields transporters turbo lifts they was all there basically yeah 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 i did my own little mini based on his book but then there's a whole story where i shamed my mom and not getting me a tech manual for christmas because it was about she said oh i showed her in the mall she's like oh larry 595 for something that doesn't really exist and i was like okay so i with my own money on spring break i stayed with my brother at his college for a week and went down and found one and got it but when i saw the tech manual and they had like all you know it was ingenious because he was trying to imply the universe beyond 
and, and you know, in a money, you know, in a model, in a business model, you're not going to have a 5,000 page book. Who's going to buy that? So he's done this, but he's expanded the Star Trek imagination by having all the other pages in the index that you just don't happen to see or that didn't. There's a little meme behind the story of the tech manual that it was transferred to the Omaha Air Base like in, in Tomorrow's Yesterday. But I remember thinking, well, where's all these other pages he talks about? So I was like making up my own pages to fill in. And then when B. Joe's Concordance came out, and I'd always enjoyed astronomy and star watching, I realized when you saw them all together, how many, how many stars and planets there were. I was like, look at all these stars and planets. They're just like not organized at all. And I knew a lot of them, like Alpha Centauri, well, that's, you know, Rigel and Capella and, you know, go down the list. They're obviously real stars. So I was intrigued. And then Franz Joseph had tried to do a star chart where he took a very basic approach to here are the real stars. And he did a few story clues, story points around what that would look like for the fictitious stars. Anyway, that became like this, this passion where I started off. And I was getting all the real astronomy I could get. And some of these are obscure stars. And I was, I finally like wrote a letter to the Harvard Observatory and some grad student wrote me back with spectral classes and distances that something wasn't available in my local library. But I was like for a year or two hunting. So I, I platted all this out. And then in the old days had hand rub set letters and made, made some rough charts and then made a big wall chart that I've still got over here. And then to make to make uh, to to correspond with Jeff Mandel back when he was a fan and was doing techie behind the scenes blueprints and things. Uh, and then he was putting out a new book and he said, oh, let's put this in the book. And he put it in his format. And then everything blew up with my first lesson in the way the real world works. Uh, a pocket, a, a pouch of maps called the Star Trek maps that came out in 1979, right before the motion picture. And it was a better scale and layout than what Franz Joseph had done in the tech manual. It made a lot more sense for the scale of warp drive. And sorry if I'm getting in the weeds here, but basically 90% of what I had done was no good now because it wasn't based on, on his scale and layout and nomenclature. So I got burned, uh, but as a, as a reward, <laughs> Jeff filled up a lot of space with some joke stars and, and what I call patronage stars. And he, there's a Nimacek star in that. <laughs> and so aside from my friends teasing me, oh, Larry, show us your star. You know, the thing didn't sell. It instantly became collectible because it didn't sell because the license was going away and pocketbooks got the license. And the world you know, stood up now with the motion picture and we were off on kind of a new era. But I got teased about that for forever. So kind of in defiance, my star media and my star press and the finger pointing at the star, which was my original kind of shingle, that was all kind of like thumbing my nose at getting screwed that way. Because I never got any copies. I never got, and it wasn't Jeff's fault. It was powers that be. So number one, when TNG came back and and all that, it was also kind of the Macintosh revolution and the, and the laser printer revolution. And I jumped back in in some ways and started working on kind of an encyclopedia, a joke concordance kind of guide for next gen. And that's what, got me on the path to what where we are today and then years later you know mike finally came up with a mike akuda finally came up with a canon rough that the quadrant system and where all the big empires roughly are and then jeff winds up working on the movies and the series you know he was a kid in new york i was a kid in oklahoma and he's working on the series and he's putting a lot of this into practice and making it canon on voyager and enterprise and then does the book in the charts and we're working to, he asked me to help him. And so we're kind of working together again. It was so weird. It was like, 
we were kids and now we're in both in LA and working on this. And then stellar cartography was kind of the next phase of that, where it was all big wall charts. And I got to write some narrative, you know, explanations for that. So that's a long winding road there. And I'm sorry to go on about it, but um, it's a case where, you know, you, you take your fanish impulse and, and your other hobbies and they all get mixed together and you start down this path. And if you put a little more oomph into it, um, it get it might get noticed, and then also you know the technology changes, <laughs> and um, you know who knows what can happen. But th- that's a that's a crazy road that that's that's wound up with the stellar cartography maps. But it actually that was that was my first real big oomph in fandom, and it's still in my life today, which is crazy. I mean, as they say on Enterprise, it's been a long road getting from here to there, right? But I'll, <laughs> I'll spare you any further Enterprise jokes. But you know, it does kind of remind me of another story outside of Star Trek. Uh, and that's, you know, in the world of pro wrestling, where we have guys like uh, Dave Meltzer, who started his newsletter, or guys like that who basically made a newsletter, and were basically outsiders looking in, and fast forward to now, and they're insiders looking in, telling all of us what's going on. So it, it's pretty cool when worlds collide like that. It is, and it's like whenever there's a pivot point, either in Star Trek world, or in the in the greater culture, right, when the technology, it's like uh, uh, Tony um, at TrekMovie.com popped up when everything else fell apart and he cultivated a, a relationship with, with Bob Orsi and, and, um, and Evan and, and Kurtzman, especially Bob Orsi. And then he turned that into reporting on the first movie rumors and then built Trek movie from that the same way. Yeah. The same way Dan Madsen built the official fan club originally, and then did the star Wars and the, and the Lucasfilm fan clubs. But uh, yeah, the way Mike and Corden's, that I finally did. It wasn't even my first, my first choice, but when they saw that, um, that got the attention to do the companion, the TNG companion. I thought I had a book already ready to go, but they'd already decided to have Mike and Denise do a whole new encyclopedia that combined, you know, B Joe's original series concordance with like what I was doing and then be ready to go on because the eyes were forward. Like there are going to be more than one series. I was just thinking, well, you've got B Joe's now, my published mine, it's already done, <laughs> but no, it has to be a behind the scenes, you know, and then I'm terrified that they give me three months to do a, a behind the scenes book. And I'm thinking, you know, my idol here, my influence, Stephen Whitfield's making of, and it's been on people's shelves for 20 and 30 years. And if I'm going to do something in three months that all I have, I have trivia and data points and credits, but I have not interviewed anybody the way he did. And I don't want to be a laughing stock, you know, or disdain disdain by fandom and be that that crappy ripoff guy that they want twenty bucks for. I'm just, you know, terrified. And it wound up being six months rather than three months, thanks to Leonard being mad at licensing about the Fruity Pebbles Barney's pointed ears commercial. That's a story. <laughs> so I got more. Yeah. So it's like I learned so many lessons having nothing handed to me, and one of them was, you know, it's Hollywood the pictures are always worth more than the words. People always care more about the pictures than the words. Even when it's like you're writing this, you know, chapter book, this behind the scenes book and something, an image like that can get you, you know, twice as much time as you thought you were going to have. So anyway, but that was, that was like, you know, pedaling as fast as you can, dancing as fast as you can through fear. Also knowing that the weight of the world, knowing that there are a lot of these authors that you, especially in the seventies and eighties, they would contract with, who didn't care a flip of it. It was like, it was just another job and they'd come in. Same thing happens sometimes behind the scenes on the shows. It's a job. They come in, they they're professional. 
but there's not, I don't want to even say the love, there's not the between the lines, the between the cracks to it. There's no real And there are some people that come to it and they feel all like I do, like I'm sure Denise and Mike did, but they were working on the show. They had an in there. Uh, but anybody who feels the pressure because they know what Star Trek is and fandom is, and they know the history, they know what has been a staple and what's fallen by the wayside, what people still ridicule, you know, or what's been a, what's been a treasured part of the shelf. That's almost, that's mean <laughs> when you, when you feel like if you've been handed a suicide mission and it's like, I've got to pull this off. So, you know, a lot of things you're not happy about, but uh, you know, it's, the three editions of the companion now there, and there'll be future books. There's another next gen book coming out, you know, now, but I know a lot of people uh, that'll be on there. You know, a lot of the basic stuff we got into print back in the day when we weren't getting paid for it, but still crammed it in there. Cause it ought to be in there, but those are all sagas. I'm you know, I'm just really happy and blessed that somebody noticed that I made enough noise. Somebody else noticed and then things aligned so that you could, you know, get asked. And then we eventually moved to LA and for 15 years there's more Star Trek than we can keep up with right it's insane times we live in right now yeah but you know I'm glad you mentioned uh, Bijo's name a few times now in this interview because she's someone I want to spend some time talking about because mm. you know if we're talking about fans Bijo is the original super fan so uh, if you wouldn't mind can you kind of educate my audience on who the Trimbles are and why they're so important to Star Trek history oh I should yeah see this is I try to always do this and then there's times when I forget so Bijo and John Trimble were science fiction fans. They were in lit fandom. They were at the world con when Gene showed up in 1966 at Cleveland with copies of the cage and where no man, and he's going to show them. And he actually brings along a couple of costumes that had been filmed in that no one had seen yet. Cause the show hasn't, this is like the weekend before the show premieres in 1966 labor day weekend ish before, you know, the, the famous, uh, uh, September 8th, you know, start date, although it was two days earlier than that in Canada. But uh, he's he and he models a Romulan uniform from Balance of Terror. And they're one of their cosplay. Well, now we say cosplay. One of the costuming people, one of the young women that modeled wore, wore the, uh, uh, Andrea's suit from What Are Little Girls Made Of? That, you know, very revealing. You had to have a certain body type to be able to pull that off. One of my favorite outfits. And yes, yes. It's kind of timeless. <laughs> and um, I mean, the fact that he was there promoting it on his own almost because science, you know, it's hard to imagine now, but that's one of the things that made Star Trek such a standout was that film science fiction. You had, you got maybe one or two movies a decade that were decent. You got a lot of crap and then TV was just a joke. You finally got Twilight Zone, but it was an anthology. You got Lost in Space, which quickly turned into a joke. So no one respected science fiction on film. So he was like, you know, uh, he was against the current there, but he, but people at the, at the con were happy to see it. And he's, he actually modeled that there's pictures of him and her wearing that in their costume show, but B. Joe and John ran that costume show. They'd been part of mainstream lit fandom, sci-fi fandom for ages. There was no need to divide it into lit and media fandom back then. Cause it wasn't big enough to be more than just sci-fi fandom. And, um, very soon after that, they were in touch and went everything from working on what became the Concordance, which actually was another woman that started writing it. But they, basically encyclopedia-izing, she was the Akutas before the Akutas were the Akutas, as far as the encyclopedia goes, or before I did my Concordance. I modeled mine on hers with a lot of tweaks. But she did a fan version of that. 
But then, you know, even more famously, she ran the initial Star Trek Enterprises for Gene and Majel. If, they, if it was flat and it would go in an envelope, we'll sell it because uh, of the postage. And then got tapped to do the, you know, the letter writing campaign, especially the second season one that actually got a third season for the for the original show and made it more enticing to syndication and all, you know, all the dominoes that fell in a good way because of that. So, yeah, B. Joe and John and we a lot of times we say B. Joe and forget John, but B. Joe and John together were a force. And then the first 10, 20 years, they were, at you know, conventions all over. They had their lit fandom as well as their star trek fandom uh and then when things kind of moved on she was a big big uh, mover and shaker in the sca the medieval role-playing you know persona the society of creative anachronism or for creative anachronism and she became big in fiber works and dying and all that crafty bit but she kept her hand in on the sci-fi side and um you know their kids grew up and they still they lived in texas and they're back here in la but they're just like a living uh, you talk about a living encyclopedia, a living legacy, the folks they knew and the the actors and the sci-fi writers and, you know, talking about firsthand, <laughs> just name dropping or firsthand stories from all the years of cons, much less the world cons, much less, you know, the Star Trek world and a lot of the Hollywood world. They're just they're just amazing. And I've been very thrilled to have to have them on the Trek files. And so if you ever get a chance to hear them talk, uh, go meet them or just say hi, um, everybody. You, you want to do that. It's a direct con, not just to Star Trek, but to the original world of sci-fi before everything <laughs> melted down and Hollywood got involved. And and now we live a 24 seven Comic-Con culture and everybody takes all this for granted. And it wasn't always that way. And um, I just love being, being around and being able to talk and in a legit format, especially be able to mine them. And like I said, we had them on the Trek files talking about all of their Trek interface on the record. So if anybody wants to check out that interview, go ahead. We'll have a link for it also in our show notes. And, you know, me personally, I'm hoping one day I get to have the Trimbles on my show as well, because I want to, you know, I want to pay my respects you as should. well. It's they're they're very important to this franchise, just as much yeah. as any of the actors and directors and anybody else out there are. And it's sad the way the pendulum swings and the hot thing of the moment, you know, it when when we, when we went through that 12 year desert of no, at least no episodic Star Trek, um, you would think that the microscope would turn on since there's nothing new coming from the studio we would get introspective and we, and we, I say we fandom did a little bit, but there was still a lot of, there weren't a lot of new people coming in, but um, I, you know, the last five, 10 years or so, like I was glad to see the Trimbles invited to that event before Star Trek beyond at Paramount in 2016, you know, there's a lot of embracing, you know, the history of Star Trek and Star Trek's fandom as well, because we wouldn't have a franchise without the fandom, without those people like John and B. Joe and all those those kids and adults that wrote, you know, the letters in 67 and 68 and, and made a noise. We talk about fan ownership today. Well, that's the DNA. Of it. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. 
own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schimmelman. And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Larry, I wanted to spend some time today talking about Star Trek conventions. Now, now, me personally, I've only actually ever been to one, unfortunately. I'm hoping to change that once we get out of COVID. I've gone to plenty of other Comic-Cons. And in fact, uh, that's how I first found out about you. Was when you came over to New York to do a Big Apple Comic-Con. Uh, and you were, uh, I believe, hosting Brent Spiner and David Gerald's panels. So oh, wow. that was my that's, first time yeah. learning about Larry Nemechek. Uh, that's the only New York convention in New York proper that I've ever been to as a guest. Oh, okay. Well, we got to change that. So I got to go out and get to a proper Star Trek con more so uh, than, you know, the one I've been to. And you got to come here and do some more New York cons. But uh, that's a different episode. I just kind of wanted to actually ask, uh, what is your very first Star Trek convention experience? What do you remember from the first time you ever did it? And, you know, how did you feel about it? Because back, I imagine when you were going to cons, it's not like it is today where I feel like now it's become so mainstream. I, I feel like a Comic Con or even a Star Trek uh-huh. con, 80s, 90s, 70s, if you want to go that far back, still was kind of very niche and maybe looked down upon. Well, you know, like I was saying, we had sci-fi cons and then Star Trek became a thing that no one had ever seen before. And, you know, six, eight years before Star Wars, which wouldn't have ignited. Uh, Lucas wouldn't have got his loans and financing if it hadn't been for Star Trek exploding as this dead little show that refuses to go away and is more popular, you know, after it's been canceled than it ever was on TV. Welcome, and it's George. actually, you know, not only just like people are excited, but it's selling books local stations are raking in the bucks because their ratings are sky high because this dead little show, you know, so it was, you know, it's America and the capitalism bucks are going to move things along as well as passion. 
and it's all related though. So, um, yeah, the, the, in fact, it was, it was that first, you know, like I was not in New York. I was sitting, I was a kid in Oklahoma watching things happen in New York and LA and those conventions, the original ones and going, Oh my God, the all star Trek ones. And I hadn't even been to a convention of any kind. There was a little convention near me that a bunch of dealers did once or twice. And they, they were more nostalgia, old time radio Westerns, you know, that kind of thing. Science fiction, when there was decent science fiction to be, you know, whether it was bug eyed monsters and giant radiated insects or whether it was day the earth stood still, you know, or forbidden planet, but that was kind of the realm. Um, and, uh, and, and Star Trek broke that open to where the 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 start the new Trekkies were invading all the old school cons, and after they kind of got the original gatekeeping was a little bit of the well this is nice but you really need to you really need to study your classics and read some Heinlein or read some Asimov or read some you know Verne, and and finally they just got so fed up and they they were feeling outnumbered because here come two thousand Trekkies to a con that's got five hundred <laughs> litcon people. And finally, they said, you know, maybe you guys should go off and do your own convention. And they did. And, you know, we know. So beginnings of Comic-Con culture really were was Star Trek splitting that off. And they all exist today. And, you know, and there's large cons and small cons. But when you say, what was my first Trek con? I can say, well, my first convention of any kind was a day con my mom took me to where the two guests were um, the guy that played Spanky McFarlane and our gang. And, you know, and uh, there was a DC comics artist and i'm not a comics book guy so i didn't care but that's the place where i first saw not only big like somebody had 35 millimeter prints of star trek and i saw sitting on the edge of forever and trouble with tribbles on a big screen you know like a big projector screen and i also saw the bloopers for the first time which blew me away you know um but the first time i went to a real overnight con i was in college and went to ocon which was multi it's start star wars had been out and there were no Star Trek guests because it was still lit-ish, but they were embracing media because Star Wars and, you know, the impulse, the curve was way up on interest and Star Trek was there. And, um, yeah, I remember going in and but I remember thinking when I went to my first real con, my image of it was I got a box in college and I put my tech manual, my medical reference, my uh, blueprints, my making of books, my giant poster book set. Uh, basically, I was thinking we're all going to go and sit around and talk about Star Trek's background. Like that was my image of what fans did at a convention. <laughs> so I packed all my books up and went and I got there and it was like I didn't stop to think, well, there are other interests here besides Star Trek. OK, but even among the Star Trek people, it's like, oh, oh, some people are really getting off talking about the characters and writing fan fiction. Uh, OK, I guess they can do that. So at the risk of coming off as shallow, you know, somebody, and, and the modern words we've, you know, cosplay is like a 10, 15 year old word now. And shipping is that you still say shipping to me. I think, well, is it FedEx or UPS? But I get it. But, um, but that was, I was so wrong. I, but I projected me into fandom. I thought we're all going to sit around and, and debate and hash out, you know, questions and mysteries and all that kind of stuff. The thing I do in my column in the print magazine ish or somehow in the pages of the stellar cartography book, you know, flesh out the background, fill in the gaps, smooth it. I, that's what I or talk about who made the shows. That's what I thought we'd be. So I got, I got educated real fast. And I remember the first movie since he just passed. I remember the first movie I walked in a film room and saw was silent running. 
Um, but yeah, and I met Russell Bates, who was an Oklahoma a native, a Native American, um, who wrote, who was one of the co-writers on uh, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. The only real Star Trek connection I had then was realizing that, A, this guy wrote it and he lived in Oklahoma. B, he was Native American. C, he lived in Oklahoma and he had a connection to Star Trek, which immediately, you know, and B, he came by and looked at all my medical props that I had hand built and said, you know, this looks as good as anything they have in Hollywood. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, yay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's my, the first Trek con may have to be, I may have to say that it was the con of wrath. It may have to be the ultimate fantasy in 82 in Houston. That was all Star Trek for the first time that I went to. And not to make you feel too bad, uh, Larry, I wasn't even born yet. So uh, apologies for I, that. <laughs> I, I knew the job was dangerous when I took it today. <laughs> I mean, neither of us is wearing a red shirt, but I feel like we both just got red shirted here. But, um, you know, <laughs> we, we talked about how there's been, uh, I like how you put it, like deserts in the, the Star Trek timeline. How there's been or, long or the gaps fallow years. That's what I also call it. Yeah. Good terms. Yeah, I like these terms. I'm going to steal those. Um, so, you know, I feel like conventions were probably very important in also keeping the franchise alive and keeping interest in it. Because, again, up until the last few years, Star Trek was really not even on TV as much as it is now. So, uh, you know, in your opinion, were conventions actually important to keeping this franchise going, keeping it alive, keeping bringing in new fans? Or was it just kind of like, you know, we're all here and we're just watching our numbers dwindle until uh, suddenly, you know, Discovery's up back on, on the air? Well, it's, I mean, different. Like, I, I was not really part, or I got in the very tail end of the first generation because original Star Trek fandom was about celebrating the show like any fandom would do. But the original, the subtext or the spine of Star Trek fandom was the revival. And it was the fan ownership angle of how dare you cancel this show that's the most awesome thing ever seen in media or philosophy. <laughs> so it was almost like a protest the, rally. This is the 18, 20 year old, you know, the best thing to ever grace American TV. It was so subversively radical, you don't even get it. And, and to build toward demanding, not asking, but demanding a return as a TV show or as a movie or something like you cannot let this die. You know, the fan fiction was all about, ha, you can't take my Star Trek away from me. If you're not going to give it to me out of Hollywood, I'll make my own. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was a little more, you know, of a snarky level to it. Some of it was just the passion drove that, but there was a level that's, you know, you can't take this away from me. I feel like I'm doing the, I feel like I'm doing uh, the Mal and uh, the Firefly theme here, but um that happened. And that's why there's, again, that's why there's such an ownership to so much so that when the cart, when the animated series came out and some people were like happy, there was a chunk of fandom that said, Oh no, you're not going to, you're not going to satisfy us. You can't buy us off with this cheesy little Saturday morning cartoon. That's probably going to be a crock and be pathetic and be embarrassing to watch. Oh no, we're not letting you off the hook. Boycott that. They think they're going to get away with this. I mean, there was a whole reaction against the animated series just because it wasn't live action, a series or a movie. So, you know, and then we had the dance of the 70s, but original fandom was all about getting something back. And that's why anybody that watches the motion picture today, yeah, critique it as a piece of cinema, critique it and know about it as a piece of insane movie making business where they promised that date and they would be, it could have almost broken the studio if they hadn't, which is why it was rushed you know, all of that saga, but also look at it when people make fun of the, you know, of the, of the pod going around the enterprise, that was a reward to fandom for hanging in with them for 10 years. And people, you know, to this day, anybody who was in the theater, the vast majority of people will defend that moment, even as it's such a memeable, you know, people can make fun of that, but it's like, no, that was, 
that was for you guys. We're spending money. This is what you had to have in your imagination for 10 years. And you hung in with us and did it. So that was early fandom. And then fandom was, you know, there and it kind of came through the movie era. And then next gen, you had those people wrapped up in that era. You had the faction who hated next generation because they thought the same thing. You're trying to fake us out with new people and you can't slap Star Trek on this and think we're going to buy it because we know it's Kirk, Spock and McCoy and, you know, when we all love Spock and Vulcans and Ponfar and Kirk and Shatner and all, and you're not going to put them out to pasture that easily. And and I was I was young enough to say, shut up. You got what you wanted. It's new Star Trek every week. It's not even a movie gang, you know. So but that's the kind of pendulum that happens. And when there's a downtime, every time there's been a comeback after a lull, you know, the business model runs down like in 05. And Peter's out. And then J.J. Abrams, to his credit, when people thought, oh, this will be gone for 10, 20 years before they bring it back. Um, you know, uh, uh, he reboots the entire series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 um, there, there's going to be a lot of this when, when you break the chain of the creative chain there. Sorry, I, I zoomed off for a second. I had a, te- <laughs> I had a text um, whenever people are let go. Um, he comes back, JJ comes back in and starts it up, but he's got to have a new take. And there's a, there's a little bit of ego and arrogance about, and it's just human nature. Anytime there's a gap or a long time down, the well-oiled machine has been left to sit there and rust. And then when new owners come and take it over, uh, even through the movie era, even with next gen starting up, even with some familiar faces there, there's a lot who don't. And it takes a while for things to settle down. And every time there's been a startup like that, there's been a friction point, even even with DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise, right? So it's like the worst thing sometimes about rooting for Star Trek is the fan <laughs> is the fandoms. But I still think that there's a big, vast, silent majority who aren't the one, whatever the medium of the day is, whether it's letters and letterzine columns or it's, you know, email and Twitter. Um, there's a vast silent majority that's just happy to see something happening. And they, they may critique it and have their favorites, but they're not bashing it because it's new, no matter no matter what your points are and and everything like we're seeing now discoveries coming back you know went was a horrendous lesson in how not to start a tv show up again just on its own and then year by year by year has settled in and then is it, have there been follow-ups you know their well oil machine is getting better oiled and more sure of itself and 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 we're there but yeah fandom sometimes is its own worst enemy but it's not about I most of the time until we get to the bot and the troll era, like people being paid to stir up social, you know, discord. But a lot of it still comes from people who love something so much they get afraid when something changes. And it's like sometimes they mistake their fear turns to anger and it's misplaced. And people can that's it's almost like the penalty for loving something so much that you're on a trigger, you know, to jump in. Because you can talk to fans now. That's what we used to do about those people in 87 that were ranting about the next generation, which seems heretical now, or ranting about DS9, the show that didn't go anywhere, you know, which seems insane now. Or you've got to remember now you're, but you tell the young people now, well, we were watching week to week and, and, you know, DS9 was on the hockey channel that would get bumped to 2 a.m. for every match, you know. And if you missed a week, serial is great now, serialized. But back then, if you missed two shows, you were lost, you know, on a week to weeks. So it's it's interesting how that how the fandom goes back and forth. And each one kind of is different, but it's been 55 plus years now. And 
and there, I still say this of all the media out there that we live in a Comic-Con world and, you know, Marvel and DC and Star Wars and, and Doctor Who and everything, there is nothing else. You know, Star Trek's got its unique points, even on that pile of franchises people love to be a fan of. And, and as long as they keep the things that are the most unique about Star Trek versus everything else, it, hopefully it will always be. That's what I'm kind of on guard against. If we ever start blandifying ourselves, even into something else that's popular, like a continuity of background. And that's a, that's a third rail in a little bit. And some people roll their eyes at that. But that's we don't reboot Star Trek every two years like Spider-Man and Batman. Although now Spider-Man is going to use all the reboots as a, you know. They're actually taking a uh, taking a card from Marvel, who would take a card from Star Trek about that. But anyway, we're go- uh, that's going far afield. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it kind of brings me up to this thing I've said on a lot of other people's shows uh, when we start talking about the different iterations of Star Trek over the years and the decades. And for me, you know, Star Trek is not a monolith. It can be whatever it needs to be. And, uh, you know, to be quite honest, part of that is the fact that Star Trek is a product at the end of the day, but more mm-hmm. so it's going to be always changing based on the times, based on who's looking at it, based on how we're viewing it. So it's going to always be an ever evolving thing. Um, and I think that kind of is a good segue to bring up the next topic because you kind of touch on it. Uh, and that's gatekeeping within the fandom. And, uh, you know, again, I, I feel like we see that a lot. If it's not just gatekeeping saying new Trek isn't my Trek, cause we see that all the time on social media. It's also gatekeeping and saying, I know more than you. So my opinion is bigger than mm-hmm. yours. And my opinion, therefore, is more credible than yours. So, uh, you know, you've been in this fandom a lot longer than I have. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on how gatekeeping has been a part of the Star Trek fandom and where we're at with it right now. Yeah. Well, gatekeeping as a term is like, I want to say term 47 that we've always had the concept, but we didn't have the term until the last 5, 10, 15 years or something. But yeah, I mean, I go back to there. I used to call it lit snobbery. I put it the other way around. Where, <laughs> I like that term. Uh, let's, and they were good people. The people who were putting on our small model. When I started, I started a media con as opposed to a lit con in Oklahoma City. It was Star Trek because we, I had sold the book. Uh, or just about to sell the book. And um, within two years, we'd be in LA and be able to, you know, funnel the new, the new actors on Voyager and DS9 back to the con that I started in Oklahoma City. But I had to do that because some of you may know Richard Arnold, who was Gene Roddenberry's longtime assistant. He was on the lot from about Star Trek four time, but he had been, his mother had been in fandom in St. Louis and had done cons. And he grew up helping organize actors and, and knew the original cast from, you know, the early 80s, late 70s, and then was at Gene's right hand, and his and he passed away just a couple of years ago. But his downfall was in taking that sitting at the right hand of Gene a little too literally toward the end. But he had his place in history. I had wanted to, he, he was a cheap guest. He would go, he paid his airway and his hotel and his, you know, per diem, and he would come and he would bring slides and information and gossip from the right hand of Gene, you know. And, and you know, it's true in the movie days of the 80s that Gene was kind of, an, you know, he was trying to get his status back. But by 86, they were on the verge of getting cranked up for next generation. The news was just breaking. And I had a chance. To, I had met him at a con and I wrote and said, um, you know, would you come to our convention here? Well, it was a it was a it didn't start that way, but it became under the ownership, the running of a lot of friends of mine. But they were very. <laughs> This was a thing. I know how ridiculous this sounds now. They were very focused on their Worldcon resume. And heaven forbid they have allow any actors 
or producers in because it was all about the classics and all about the lit world and art, some, some sci-fi art. But it was, I said, guys, guys, I can get, there's a new show coming. I can bring Gene Roddenberry's assistant for like next to nothing. And they're like, oh, no, no, we don't want any media people. Heaven forbid we have media people on our flyer. And I'm like, okay, how about if we fundraise for him and do that? And they're like, well, okay, but um, he can't be on the flyer. (laughs) Because they didn't want anybody they were trying to impress to put in a Worldcon bid. Like that that was their empire and that was their blinders. And they were like, so if I do my separate flyer to say he's here, that's okay. But he can't be in the like the guest of honor list. No. Okay. But otherwise, go for it. Okay. Well, we make we make the money easily. He comes. He'd also just seen my copy of my concordance, and he was madly copying for everybody back in the writer's room, even as it was, you know, chaotically turning over, which helped, I guess, in the chaos. But that's the attitude that I used to just marvel at. And then within a year or two or three, after I started my, my own my media convention, ThunderCon, um, you know, it got to the point where we were having, even in those days, even with our meager resources and pre-internet to spread the word, we were having 800, 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 people and good old CinterCon, which is now in a different phase. But back in the day, they were still hanging at 300 and 500 people then i got accused of working harder on that than the other i'm like no you can sell an actor faster than you can sell an author that nobody's heard of you can get them in publicity you know you can get stations that are carrying the show to come in and it was just the modern world that we live in now but it was and so if you want to say that's gatekeeping if you want to say that was sometimes i just that's going along with blinders on but, you know, that that kind of thing has been around. I mentioned the, the original LitCon people that told the, the Trekkies in New York to go to start their own con instead of like overrunning us because we're not going to we're not going to cater to your every whim talking about Spock. We have real science fiction to talk about. So fast forward. Yeah, we now we're all splintered up and bifurcated and the, the fandoms get along and the franchises get along or they don't. And even within Star Trek, I, I still think a lot of this is is ginned up on the side. It's we've always had people that had loud opinions, like like the fan, like the zine world that didn't like the coming of next gen, you know, all down the line. It's always been there, but eventually it's always been kind of like, okay, well, if you want to live in that world, you can be the loud 10% over there and do that. But most of the rest of fandom has either got no opinion or it's moving on. And then what happens is over time, enough time goes by that you bring these historical nuggets out and tell them to current fans and they're looking at you like you're insane. Right. There was a time in the, when I was first in fandom and I was reading Interstat, which was the, the highest level level of corresponding fans. And there were about five guys like me that cared about backgrounding. And the rest was all the women authors arguing over Spock and zines and fan fiction and everything. And that's fine, but I just knew, and I would read it and I would see what the trends were but it wasn't what my passion was. I was still on a hunt to see if anybody there were, there were anybody else's like me, but uh, that's where I found out about the faction of fandom that you talk about, like canceling enterprise or canceling discovery or something. There was a faction that canceled the third season because Spock had been so bastardized in enterprise incidents and talking to Droxine and the cloud binders that that's not the Spock and Gene wasn't running the show. So that wasn't really Star Trek to them. So they they just ignored the third season. There was a whole faction of fans that Star Trek to them ended 
after the second season. And I just remember going, okay, I get it. I get it. They're not as good as shows, but really? So you bring that one out today and people just look at you like you're crazy. So I'm already, I'm all geared up for today. It's like, guys, just, and now we got more choices than we've ever had. It's like me in 87 times 10. Just find one that you like. The other thing is that nothing is static. A show starting up is going to be very rough. And we talk about this with Discovery a lot. Like, come back and revisit it. Next generation's first season. My God, people. <laughs> it's like, always how, fun far, how much further Trex. do you need to look than there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's always fun, like, looking back on Trex, because usually half the time, like, you know, in my opinion, at least, uh, I feel like you have to look at a Trek series as a whole. You can't really pull out a few episodes, because you might pull a real stinker, or you might pull a real right. amazing five-star episode, but, you know, it's got to be balanced. You've got to kind of look at it all as one giant lump together. You know, kind of back on the topic here, I feel like we're kind of getting into an area that, um, you know, is, is really interesting to me. And that's toxicity of the fan base. And, you know, I never knew the story you told me just now about season three with the cloud miners. Like, that's surprising to me. And that, I feel like, is an example of a toxic fan also. And my question here, it's going to be twofold. But, you know, when I think of toxicity, I hear things like the Star Wars franchise and how those fans yeah. have been heard are accused of being toxic. Or uh, one of the ones that makes me really sad is how fans will accuse the Steven Universe fandom of being toxic, which is so sad to me. Uh, and I hope it's not true. But, um, you know, I, I'm curious if Star Trek has avoided becoming a toxic fan base and more so my follow-up to that is because, you know, we're looking at right now a real line in the sand on social media in particular. And that line in the sand is drawn between what feels like two warring factions. We have like our left wing Star Trek fans and our right wing Star Trek fans. And they always come to heads, especially now because of the quote unquote new Trek. We're seeing folks who are unhappy with LGBT representation. They're unhappy with seeing, you know, uh, not enough white people on a bridge, things like that. And so they're always coming to heads over these social issues. And so, you know, we're talking about toxic fandom here. My thing is, too, on top of that, how can Star Trek fans have such a huge philosophical difference when it comes to a show that's always been so forward-thinking? And, and who the heck is actually toxic in this situation? Yeah. Well, to unpack. We, we throw these terms around now. So I'll, to me, when I, somebody says toxic, like I said, I have a everybody's going to have an opinion we used to have you know the good old fan bar fights you know or sitting around the table at the club meeting or or the early days of facebook having you know debates back and forth and sometimes you you know that's how you re-examine you you brought along some assumptions maybe there was a corner of some show or series that you forgot about and even though now you can instantly go and you know check it out whether you could do that quickly or not, that would happen. And then you're going, oh, maybe it was the show that just aired this week and you missed something. I saw that pop up <laughs> talking about how, why does Discovery not know? Why does Vance not know that they've been through the galactic barrier already? And it's like, well, then remember, remember, I mean, you could go through that. So, but to me, if you say toxic, that's where it goes beyond just having differences and critiquing and having a debate. Toxic is where it gets rude and mean and, and even on the verge to dangerous. Right. And you're hounding people. And that feels like that's that's coming in from the outside culture, just in politics in general. So I do know I used to love dealers who would be at a Comic-Con where all the franchises were there. And I would talk to them, um, especially when we were filming for uh, for the Con of Wrath. And they would say, you know, the Star Trek fandom is the nicest fandom out there. Now, I know there are people corners of Trek fandom who have had scars and bruises from online battles who would say what do you mean star trek is the nicest fandom but like overall i think that's the dna of gene and idic and infinite diversity and all the original things again that i think 
I think most of, you know, fandom is, is imbued with. That's the guiding, motivating force for Star Trek. And here's where I say, we talk about what's happening online. Online fandom is just a sliver of the whole fandom. Just like convention, live convention fandom is a sliver of fandom. I call what I call the armchair fans. And maybe now I should call the, you know, the mobile viewer fans. They're just out there watching the shows and enjoying them. They may pick up the novels. They get action figures. You know, they build a model kit. They don't go to conventions and they're sure not online 24 seven. So sometimes, you know, our, our perspective is skewed because that's where we stay maybe, or we go there once or twice a week or three times a week. And it's like, Oh my God. But yeah, that it's definitely up because I think that's just in the culture. But I also think if we ever have the opportunity to like, when you go to a live con, how many times have you actually seen somebody who's up at like up at the equivalent of up in your face, screaming or running around trying to, you know, physically restrain people from going to hear people talk or, or whatever. That's, that's crazy. So it's somewhere between it's kind of the culture, which is something we need to do across the board. It's the coming of social media and all the algorithms that are funneling negativity at us, which really wasn't the the intent in the beginning, but that's, it's like algorithms are like magnets. And, And once we look at one thing, then it starts a flood and, you know, people, you know, the whole, uh, train wreck, you know, car crash on the side of the highway and everybody slows down to look at it kind of that's just human nature. But it's like if we just sit back and realize who are the real people we talk to and we meet live. I mean, that's I mean to me that's part of it. And and the gatekeeping thing where I mean it's when when differences of opinion and critiques get weaponized basically. And sometimes somebody's doing it for a reason, maybe even, you know, for some for some silver. Or people just get carried away. But this whole thing about liberal and conservative, I mean, I remember in the 80s hearing, you know, in the Reagan era, that's when I really first noticed it and realizing that the first time I ever realized I thought of a conservative Star Trek fan. I'm like, did you not watch the show? Did you <laughs> did you not get that? And now we kind of had this, you know, now it's like on steroids, but realizing that if, is it as simple as saying they're the people that they're the space battles and the pew pew people? And everything else went right past them. Or maybe as a younger person, they were, you know, that old thing about you're more liberal when you're younger and you get all, by the time you pay bills and have kids and endure some life, you know, scrapes that you get a little more conservative or you're not as out there. I, you know, I don't know. And that's an aging fandom. Maybe as we recharge the fandom and we have more young people coming in, especially with Prodigy, yay. It's not just about selling action figures. It's, you know, getting them when they're young. Maybe that will kind of swing back, but I, I know what you're talking about, but I still don't think it's a 50-50. I know in 20, I'll go there, in 2016, when Trump was running, there was a group, I, I got in with four or five people who started a Facebook page called, it was basically called Truck Against Trump. And there was a pushback on it. But when you looked at the end of the, and the, the weird thing was the other side wasn't anybody really noteworthy. There were maybe a couple of actors, but basically it was fans getting all harumphy about it. Okay, that's cool. That's fine. At the end of the day, between the celebrities and just the fans who had joined this page, it wound up being like 38,000, 36,000 to two or 300. Just as a simple a thing, it's not scientific, but just a simple thing as liking a page and having a statement about this is Star Trek. This is what Star Trek believes in. We don't think that's what this guy running is all about and we urge you not to vote for him and it was about five or six paragraphs and the other page was like it took that and totally it was like 
trying to be cute by taking it and exactly flipping it. And it wasn't outrageous. It just said the other thing. And at the end of the day, and I've got screenshots, at the end of the day, one was you know, 10,000 times more likes than the other. So that's kind of where I go back to. It's just that when you hear something jarring, you know, it registers. It's, you know, the like I used to talk about the, the loud 10% when we would talk about the people who hated Next Gen at the beginning. And I'd say, they, this is jarring. And I'm talking about just reading it in letter zines and letter comments. And they throw you when you see them. But if you sit and look at it in the light of day, how much of fandom is that? How much of it is right in the man in the channel you're in? And then how much of the fans you know in real life who aren't who aren't active, what do they think? Aren't most of them thrilled to have a Star Trek back? And they'll sit with it as it they know it, it may be wobbly at the beginning or whatever. But the basic premise isn't evil. <laughs> I mean, you know? I'd love to think that way more so, but you know, I can make some examples here. It's like you know, and so as someone who has a YouTube channel, I'm sure you probably deal with this too. Uh, mm-hmm. I could put up a video on my channel and I'll basically say whatever. I'll, I'll say something out there and I'll get a lot of good comments. Then I'll just get like that one negative comment and it could just be one person, but that one person's voice always feels so much louder because it's negative. And I feel like that's what we see on social media because that is yeah. what the fandom is now. And that's how people find the fandoms is they find something they like. They want to get a little more into it. So the first place they go is social media. They try and find people who are into the same thing that they're into. And that leads down this rabbit hole where it can be good. It can be bad. Yeah. And sometimes, it, especially younger fans, what how they know to find things, the metrics, they'll they'll go look at they'll they'll Google it, and then they'll look at what's the number of subscribers or likes or views. And sometimes the most toxic, the most negative thing again, it's the highway, you know, it's the car crash, it's yeah. the train wreck on the side of the road situation where everybody slows down to look at it, even though you know it's like it's appealing to the baser part of your instinct. It's almost like you can't overdo it, but you drive on. It's not like it's ruined your whole life. And when you adapt that to not so much the algorithm finding you, but even when you first sit down to start looking and you go, oh, this guy must be popular. He's got 180,000 you know, views or subscribers. And then, yeah, it's that. And some of that is like legacy that hangs on. I will say when I was first living on Trekland Tuesdays Live and it was, just, it was just my phone and me on a gimbal, you know, and I was hand scrolling to look at the comments, uh, the first year I did it, this, this was really, really huge and it you know, overlapped with the coming of discovery and kind of blindsided a lot of people. Um, but when that, when it looked like the top, I call them the toxic tubers looked like they were going to like, just take over and anybody that was coming to fandom was being skewed by these people or being chased off. Like they came in with the basic Trek optimism that we were all glad to have Trek back to address that and what was going on in the world and if they're being run off by this just, you know, way, you know, wave after wave of 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 hate, basically, and negativity and 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 everything, nothing is good. It's all bad. I was really starting to wonder, like, where's the where's the mainstream? Are we just not swiveled over to YouTube to attack this, much less the other social channels? And I one of my Tuesday topics was I always remember that I called it who mocks the mockers. It's like somebody's I'm doing my bit, but somebody's got to come along and help out. And I think within the next two, three years, some of this was just time going by. And it was really easy to like jaw on and on about, you know, CBS All Access and paying for Star Trek. That's not what God intended. And, you know, (laughs) bid for it to be free. And there was all of this layers and layers of stuff that was time was going to take care of some of that as the world just kept evolving. And now everybody juggles their apps and gripes about it, maybe, but they don't take it out on Star Trek. but 
you know, just some of that was time going by. And as more of these series were rolled out, now I talk about we have a buffet of Star Treks, and it's okay not to have one be your favorite. There were tons of people that didn't like DS9, they liked Voyager, or vice versa, or they didn't like either one, and they just kept watching Next Gen, you know? I mean, we had it in a microcosm, and now we, it's all on steroids. We, we've got digital, we've got apps and streaming, and the business model has changed, and it's a different world in some ways and the same in others. But eventually, it looks like, and some good streamers have come up, and it looks like now, we just talk about this every, every so often lately here after four or five years, it looks like a lot of the, at least in Trek, you know, the toxic tubers have been kind of, um, I don't say beat down with a stick. It's more like they've been laughed out of the room and like no one's paying attention. And the old, you know, the joke about, oh, they, you know, how many times has Alex Kurtzman been fired? How many times has Discovery been canceled? You know, it's a, it's a joke now. And they've been laughed out. It's kind of like laughing at the energy vampire in Day of the Dove, you know. So that's kind of, you know, eventually some of these things, time takes care of it and the pendulum swing and all that. But I feel bad for the people who come in unawares hmm. yeah, and they've yeah. got they've got nobody to give them any context or history and all that. And they're just they're just sitting there trying to find something fun on their phone or their pad or whatever. And, you know, they they get sucked into that. And hopefully they either you know, they, hopefully they see something else or the power of those are going now in the other fandoms. It's really sad. I mean, I start, you mentioned Star Wars and some of the other fandoms. That's that's the time when maybe having the more numbers, it's hard. That's a bigger battleship that's harder to turn. That's my thoughts. So we just are out here plugging along. And I just think the more new Star Treks they put down and the better a shape they are when they start. Mm, yep. And I think the animated series, both in their own ways, have blown people away. You know, I think people are getting it now to where don't look the people that lump all these shows in with the Kelvin movies and just go yuck, 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 yuck. It's like, wait, there's a huge difference between Discovery and Picard. And I'm amazed the people that don't, you know, they lump them together like they're twins. And it's like they're not (laughs) there. There's most of Picard. I enjoy a lot more than Discovery, but I'm not saying I hate Discovery. I'm just saying. I watch Discovery. I want to see what's going to happen with it. I want to see, you know, the little bits and pieces. I'm surprised all the time. But overall, I just feel like Discovery started with such a troubled, had such a, it had such a troubled birth that it's been trying to get over its rough birth ever since. And, you know, where Picard started more out of the gate and my God, Lower Decks and, and Prodigy started incredibly well-formed. And now we're all excited for Strange New Worlds. So, you know, but that's the reality. It's not that there's just this monolithic ug to everything after 2005 that's just silly and the time will also take care of that because eventually just like the people that that hated next gen at the beginning because it wasn't real star trek because it wasn't kirk spock and mccoy and who are, who's this ca- bald captain are you kidding me he's so old that's, yeah he's so old and he's french and he has an english accent and he's bald get out of here what don't 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 try to sop me with these replacements i mean that was you know that's laughable now you, it's understandable and it's historical, but it's laughable now. But at the, back in the day, at the at the at the speed we moved along, at that was a that was a chunk of you know angry fandom at times. And that and so time time will take care of all of this. We just yeah. have to survive and do our put our best foot forward and and just pay attention and not. So many people are still stuck with. There are still people today as DS Nine, you know, with the Netflix revolution became. Well, it looks to be the Star Trek that's actually stood up to the test of time the best. And every once in a while, I, that's kind of the, you know, that's a meme in itself. But every once in a while, I'll still run to people that go, oh, my God, DS9 is so horrible. If you miss one episode, you're just totally lost. And it's like, it's, 
it's this is 2022, not 1992. It's <laughs> it's okay, you know. You can stream it and binge it. It's going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. You can basically find a way to watch it. It's not that hard. You can easily find that missing episode now. Um, and you know, basically, kind of bring us back to to things here. You know, you and I, we can't really solve this dilemma in the course of one hour in a podcast episode. But uh, I think we can both agree that there's no wrong way to be a fan, whether you're a casual or you're a hardcore fan, as long as you're not hurting someone else. And that's I think where we kind of draw the line. Toxicity is yes. if you're trying to rain on someone's parade. That's where the problem lies. Yeah, yeah. And I will include people who are like if you're a if you're a costumer, if you're a cosplayer. Uh, costume builder, I'll even say, or if you do CGI models or you build props. I mean, I remember seeing kids wearing powder blue Spock shirts that looked atrocious. But did I walk up and go, well, this is horrible. I mean, you know, it's like you, you're you encouraging. Are you are you in some kind of master class competition where the, that's the scale of the judging? No, just walking, just enjoy everybody. You don't have to snark out or prove how great you are. And you know, and some of this is just... I hate to say it, but some of it's just our younger fans and just it's just the immaturity or not having lived a lot of life experience. You know, the years going by and just living some life out there and bumping into people of different. And sometimes you're on the top and sometimes you're on the bottom and sometimes you're in the helpless middle. You know, so just as we get our corners rounded down a little bit, that that again, that kind of takes care of that. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, celebrate everybody for what their passions are. And look, we went through 10, 12 years for the powers that be. And a lot of us were worried that unless Trekkies were making babies, we were going to die out. You know, I mean, seriously, will we ever see action figures on sale at Target and Walmart again? Well, now we are, we've got a, we've got a franchise going, we've got, you know, shows aimed at kids, but it's, you know, we can breathe easier that way. It's not just going to be this aging fandom that winds itself into the grave or whatever. We're going to have a good mix of people from all backgrounds and ages and where they came into Star Trek. And, you know, they're, they're all going to bring their all their own worldview and how they grew up and where and how, and what they bring to their Trek, much less what Trek they bring. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's all good. It's all good. We're, we're yeah. good. We'll be, yeah, we'll be fine. And what, what I think is really interesting too, about the fandom right now, this current moment, let's just say is the fact that, you know, we are still dealing with COVID-19, but we're hopefully yeah. at a tail end of it now. And uh, I know so many people who I work with or who I've become friends with, and they basically just started watching it as like their pandemic project. They started watching TNG if they're like my age. Uh, and now they're like, you know, they might not be super hardcore. They might not be going to a convention, but they're so into TNG and they love it and they respect and admire Star Trek at some level. Uh, and that's a big deal. So, you know, these folks are now getting into Star Trek during like one of the worst times ever in the history of the world. And they're just discovering something that they really like that they never knew they liked before. So as morbid as it might sound, uh, and I wonder if you'll agree with me, I feel like the pandemic has actually been very good for Star Trek and for the boom period that we're in right now. I think I think it slowed down the poor producers trying to keep up with the demand and trying to make like Paramount Plus, you know, a, a year round thing instead of like watching for a couple months and turning it off and or whatever or people cramming it in the free week and i don't blame people for doing that that's what it's there for and hey go for it but you know aside from the pandemic interrupting and slowing down the flow of production yeah just just i mean i was doing uh, portal 47 the the core tech of that was my business coaches showed me free conference call seven years ago (laughs) seven years ago and i've been doing coaching and you know and learning and voiceover that way and, um, but I realized we could do, we could go behind the scenes. We didn't need a big business model. I didn't need to be a convention or a magazine that we could have behind the scenes people 
people who nobody has ever heard from before across all the eras, but I could use, you know, a virtual streaming, a virtual uh, private virtual conferencing to get that to people and have that be a business even. And so we had been free conference calling and I'd been debating about doing Zoom and then boy, the pandemic hits and now the whole world Zooms. And uh, and I went ahead and flipped it over. But like I said, I, I'd been doing that for four or five years ahead. And and I think, yes, one of the things may be this whole virtual component. So many people went there. A lot of the actors and other creatives went there to survive. Or if they didn't need to survive, they just gave it themselves like Patrick, Sir Patrick reading a sonnet every night, like all the Shakespeare sonnets once a day. I mean, little things like that. Sid, you know, starting Sid, his Sid City social forum. But just fandom in general in the world getting used to this kind of a platform and even YouTubers and, and podcasters making it way easier to do what they've been doing for a year or two or five or 10, just making it easier to do that. So, so people are, you can do more with less and less overhead and less, you know, potential. So yeah, there'll be a lot of, and, and live events may have virtual streaming components where that used to be a big experimental thing that at least, one time, I remember somebody losing their shirt trying to set that up about 15 years ago. But, you know, now it's easy to do. And maybe there'll always be a virtual connection when it, even when people can go live, you know, but it's global. It's made us global and we can fight the time zones and be global, too. So, yeah, it's there'll be some good things coming out of this. But the fact that I just remember we had a opening night preview party here in, in Burbank for Picard. And two weeks later, the world was shut down. And it was amazing how we snapped from you know, the old to the new, just in that span of just in that 10 weeks was kind of amazing. And now maybe we're going to be coming out of it, hopefully, on the next go round of, you know, Picard. But uh, yeah, um, some some aspects about the pandemic have been good. And your your binge watcher real quick, I uh, was just at Gallifrey, which is a WhoCon. And Sean always says, well, Larry, who, you know, who people have other interests too. And there's a lot of Trek people there that I know from LA and around the country. But I had a I had 20, 30 people in my solo panel, and we always did our what trek did you come in from? What's your most favorite now? And all of that. And people talking about just it's about hearing fan opinions and me kind of leading it. And one young woman, I say young, she was post-student. She had to be 25, 28. She was talking about uh, she'd been quiet and everybody else, they always skew older at conventions anyway. But she was talking about how the pandemic came along and she was a geek of many franchises, but she'd never seen Star Trek and she knew about it. And she had friends that were fans and she decided, yeah, she, in pandemic, she's going to sit down and watch. She not only watched, she started with the cage, <laughs> went everything in order in production order. When she got to the overlap of DS nine with TNG, she went back and forth. Like she was watching them in real time. <laughs> and there are some sites, I guess that, that have that all for you. If you don't want to research it yourself. And then overlapped Voyager with DS9, and then would drop the movies in when they fell. And and she and and to this day, where she's caught up with the latest, you know, the latest Discovery and Prodigy, having you know, she was caught up to today. And it was funny because she said, "And boy, I get it when people are pissed about Discovery season one." <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people I think are out there like her. And if they're all if they're all twenty something, so much the better. But but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what. All, there are a lot of ripples in play right now. It's a huge transition time, mostly for the good, I think. And it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, our new fandom coming along, people in the middle and watch older fans who aren't keeping up, watch, you know, watch some of their blinders get challenged a little. 
So, Larry, like we said, you know, we're now confident or at least we're optimistic that we're on the tail end of this pandemic here. So, you know, as you are the elder Trek statesman here, uh, what are your hopes for 2022 and beyond in terms of what this community is and who we are and how we're growing? Well, my hope would be that everybody just feels more comfortable in their skin. My hope is that external factors like politics and COVID especially can let us all kind of relax and enjoy what we enjoy, but also that people can enjoy the fact that, yes, some will be better produced than others, or some will just be a favorite to some and not as much a favorite to others. Just the way fandom has never been all one monolith. It was a shock to me to find out that not every fan was a background fan. What do they do with their fandom then if they're not talking about background? I mean, that we will find a way to relax and enjoy infinite diversity, infinite combinations is the good old trite way to Star Trek way to say it. And it makes the point, but just enjoy what you enjoy. We have never been so blessed to have this many choices, this buffet of Star Trek that we're going to be having. And the legacy shows aren't going anywhere. The legacy characters may even be revisited. So it's, it's like we've never had this much content to choose among, and we've never had such great tech tools to enjoy it. We survived the pandemic thanks to virtual streaming. So it's like we've never had a time in fandom like this before. And eventually, I hope everybody can just unclench, you know, even with the cares of the world. But we can just sit back and enjoy what, what all we're into right now and get involved in all the best ways and find the friendships and have opinions and be respectful and do all those things that Star Trek is supposed to represent. And we will get to that future if we can all maintain that. But my gosh, we've got so much to enjoy right now if we will just sit back and do it. Yeah, we totally do. There is so much awesome new Trek coming out all the time now, especially mm-hmm. this year. There's, It's a smorgasbord. It's kind of amazing. It's a smorgasbord if we want to get punny, but I'm not going to do that to you because <laughs> I already hit you up. Terrible Enterprise jokes like an hour ago. So, Well, you know, people, smorgasbord is, is 15 or 20 years old, so don't worry about it. I can't take credit for it, but I can totally just beat it to death. <laughs> So, Larry, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, you know, you are a true ambassador of the community and of the oh, fans. And that's you. why I had to have you here to really tackle this topic with me. Because, um, again, you've been invested in this far longer than I have. And, uh, you know, you, you are a true wealth of knowledge. And I hope you don't mind being so complimentary because it's the truth. But, uh, you know, you've really accomplished oh. a lot of what you're doing, what you continue to do, and just how deeply invested you are in this fan base. So uh, thanks for being a fan. Thanks for being Dr. Trek. And, again, we appreciate all your time today just chatting with us about so many different things and uh, just telling us all about how great this community really is and how great it can be. <laughs> well, thank you, Matthew. And good luck with everything with Trek Untold. And, and you you keep on this path. You're doing a lot of good yourself. Oh, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Trek well. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Shout out once again to Paul White for chatting with us and being one of the coolest guests we've ever had on this show. And of course, don't forget to check out AEW Revolution this weekend on pay-per-view, on Fight TV, or any place you go to watch live premium sporting events. This has the potential to be one of the most intriguing, one of the most fast-paced, one of the most hard-hitting, and easily one of the most violent AEW pay-per-views that we've seen in quite some time, and I think it's going to be one that goes down in the history books. So don't miss it. Until next time, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold or pick up some merchandise from our Redbubble store. If you're looking for direct links for any of these things, links will be right in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments for the show or would like to suggest a guest or discuss any sponsorship ideas with us, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Trek Untold and for continuing to support this show. I hope you'll come back next time to learn more stories about Star Trek and beyond. Until then, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and always remember, fortune favors the bold.
Trek Untold is sponsored by TrekSphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms. Is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.